Hey, welcome to the So To Speak podcast. I'm your host, John Beadle. You can find me at johnbeadle.com and my Twitter at John Beadle. You can also find So To Speak on Twitter at speak underscore official. Find us on Facebook. So, well, um, it's a week, um, a week ago, actually, that I added a new member to my family. So I'm now a father of two, now a baby girl. Uh, my son is almost three years old and, um, and my daughter is only a week old as of today on Monday. So good times. So I've been busy with just hanging out with my wife and spending time with the new addition to our family. It has been a whirlwind of an experience. Let me tell you, I'm I'm just overwhelmed (laughs) in so many different ways. Uh, The thing about being a parent is, you know, kids help you see life again, right? It's um, an unfortunate byproduct of our society that whenever you decide to take on the responsibility of provision, um, for others and yourself, uh, you tend to stop looking at life and just keep your head down and grinding. And uh, kids, I think, you know, help you see life again, like for the second time. So it's a really, it's a big joy, I mean, a huge pleasure. What a blessing. So very happy about it. And um, so that's a little update on my life. Something I want to talk about is some, uh, is about a person I've actually mentioned before on the podcast. One of my heroes of all time uh, was a lawyer, once a chancellor to King Henry VIII, by the name of Thomas More. Let's talk about it. The question that I have is, what do you do when the king wants your head? This was the question that Sir Thomas More very famously had to contemplate um, after he'd been arrested for refusing to to um, bend the knee to the marriage between Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn, of course, would be Henry VIII's second wife after he was seeking, has spent years seeking an annulment from his first wife, Catherine, Lady Catherine, right from the Pope. And this is the very famous divorce, you know, the one that created the church that I'm a part of and uh, that so many of us are a part of called the England Church or the Church of England. Uh, it's not only this, of course, unfairly Henry VIII gets a, gets a bad rap. Anglicans get a bad rap for being uh, m- members of a, of, a reli- of a sect of Christianity that began with, uh, with sin, right? Um, but... There are some very fascinating things that happened during that time, uh, the least of which, not the least of which, was the martyrdom of Thomas More. Now, Thomas More had been a very famous lawyer. He'd been born to a very wealthy family, but um, he used that privilege, I guess, to to um, to become something. Right? This is sort of the, the medieval idea that if you were born of a certain status and class, there was this chivalric idea that you would become. Uh, or use it for good, use it for greatness, not just for glory, uh, but use it to serve. Use it to serve those who don't have what you have, right? And um, it's re- and can, this idea has never been better embodied than, uh, I think, by anybody than Thomas More. And Thomas More was a very devout Catholic, but he was also um, very keen on some of the developments that have been happening in, during the Renaissance period. And, and he had basically developed um, a law profession that was very... Um, clearly in favor of a sort of like humanistic understanding of the law or natural law theory. When Thomas More um, went to trial, though, was arrested for refusing to say yes to the marriage, 
it wasn't because he wasn't he didn't go to trial because he had said anything slanderous about the king in fact the one witness that they produced uh to come against thomas more thomas more was able in court to just just deconstruct the man's argument to show why this man had no credibility the one witness um now this is sort of a banana this is like a a, a kangaroo court style trial because you know no courts no court is ever going to go on just the testimony of one witness um and so you need at least two, right? And Thomas More very much believed in due process. But, you know, this is sort of the, mis- the, 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 the ignorance of our day and age today. We typically look at the medieval times as a time of great ignorance and a time of flat earthers and, um, and, and disease, right? And we look at ourselves as the enlightened ones. But at the time, you could argue that they actually had a more... Uh, more complete understanding, a more holistic understanding of natural rights and responsibilities because those rights were tempered by duties, by virtue. Whereas today it seems like our rights are their own, their own um, and into themselves, that just seeking to get one's right to breathe and, and, and the right of movement and, and ascending the, the hierarchy of, uh, of privilege is somehow enough to keep a society stabilized, which is... Uh, I'm going to argue completely uh, uh, a reductionistic view of of what it actually what rights actually are, but nevertheless I digress. So when Thomas More got to speak, this is actually um, very very well um, captured in the movie A Man for All Seasons. When he spoke, he said, "Some men say the world is flat; some say it is round. If a decree of the king could make the world round, would it be so? And if an act of parliament could make the world flat, would the world then be so?" And then he goes on to make an argument how it is according to these laws that no king has the right, no temporal authority has the right to presume authority over a church that was established by Jesus himself while he lived. It was his most famous piece of his argument, right? And then he's the then the very end he says, you know, I, I wish no harm. And then he says, but... Um, it is not for questions of supremacy that you seek my blood, but because I would not bend to the marriage. Now let's let's go back to the beginning, the flat earth versus round earth. Thomas More is arguing from a position of natural rights, okay? Natural rights are the results that they are given by nature, okay, if you're more secular, or by God if you're more religious, whatever. The argument is that a system of laws is in place not to establish reality, but to simply uh, protect it and affirm it, right? So, so for instance, natural rights, natural law, is and, and the laws instantiated in the courts and parliament were simply there to affirm things as real, like things as true, and not simply to make things true. And Thomas More saw that Henry, Henry VIII seemed to be of the mind that if he could just annul this divorce by some sort of, um, you know, some sort of like figment, some kind of fiction, then it would be a violation of natural law. That it would be, and, and if it were a violation of natural law, it would undo the very system that they had worked so hard to put in place, right? And uh, of course, Thomas More was beheaded anyway. Um, but he never said a word against the king. He never said a word against other people. He kept his mouth shut, okay? And, um, and he's a very fascinating guy. He's very famous for talking about character, meaning of being a per- to be a person of character means to be a still point in a turning world. And he had this belief, right, that 
that the, the laws should be simply there to undergird what was reality. Now, how does this apply today? Why does this matter? We are in a fever pitch, a rush to rights. The word rights, we've been fed a diet of rights um, for years now, almost exclusively as the path towards genuine equality and human flourishing, and have heard virtually nothing about human dignity and duty and virtue, the very positive actions that men and women take um, in order to, in, in, in light of these rights. And so, not only that, there seems to be a, a rush to establish laws that instantiate our worldview of rights um, in our society. That if you call something, now I'm not saying either way about, for instance, like a subject like gay marriage, right? But um, there, there's something to be said for this sort of like the this the fight to redefine a term, the bare knuckle. Um, day in and day out, 24-7 attempt to legally get something on the books that that establishes a word as something other than what it has always been, right? Um, as a union between two consenting adults, as, as opposed between a man and a woman. And uh, now, without giving away my view on this, I'm not going to. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's interesting, and it, it sort of opens the way to talk about um, a kind of concept of rights and what would it mean? Okay, I'm going to talk about the concept of negative rights, then I'm going to talk about positivistic rights, and then I'm going to um, read a quote from Simone Weil, the French philosopher and mystic. Okay, negative rights. Thomas More is operating under the assumption that right that rights has to do with protecting. Um, the most. So in other words, um, the most action, the most possible action. In other words, um, like the Bill of Rights basically undergird this theory that, that the law should state what you should not do, not what you can do or what you should do. Now, no, what you should do should be dictated by responsibility, duties, a list, list of duties and virtue as, um, as the institutions of the church, institutions of charity, Institutions of the good life, these kinds of things should reinforce, but nevertheless, that is not the job of rights, right? Rights are things for restraining authority, uh, predominantly state authority, from infringing upon the individual or relation to the group or the group that they so choose to affiliate with or the individual relationship with society. Now, is this a... Um, a, pot, like, a, a structure which can support... A society? Well, some would argue that no, actually, negative rights cannot support the flourishing of a society. It's too vague. It's not strong enough. It's not stated clearly enough. Um, and some, like Patrick Deneen, you know, in his book Why Liberal Why Liberalism Failed, um, sort of outlines why uh, the founders have liberalism, as the founders espouse it, has has come to its demise by its very by its own success. In other words. Negative rights have have uh, become an anti-culture amongst themselves, while not establishing any kind of norm within their own statements. Uh, they have done the job of actually creating a vacuum in the world. So, in other words, the golden rule, as Chesterton used to say, now in our age, in the modern age, is that there is no golden rule, or the American or Western identity is that 
you have no identity. Um, or you don't get to have a public identity. And this is where um, the, the vacuum created by this, by the liberal tradition, um, unmoored from its, from its uh, religious tradition, creates what is known as positivistic rights. Now, it doesn't mean that these rights are, like, positive. That's not, that's not what I'm, I'm trying to say. Uh, positivistic rights just means, like, posit, like, rights that you write down, therefore this is what they are. It means that, the, that something is not only true, it bears witness to reality simply by being written down and enforced by the nation-state. And, um, and that, this simply is the way it seems self-evident to me that this is the way our society governs itself these days, um, that something is true in our common life together only in as much as it can be defended and enforced by force, by the police, um, by the authorities up top. And um, it seems odd to me that those who really, really believe in this understanding of rights and securing the public good do not see the irony in um, claiming to be members or participators in a liberal tradition, which at its core seeks to um, and seeks to negate totalitarianism and regimes of empire, uh, is seeking more and more the acknowledgement and the reinforcement of empire of said rights. Something to think about. Now, let me read a quote from Simone Weil from her anthology. This is actually um, from an essay she wrote on the subject on the subject in hand, and she says, "Thanks to this word, rights, what should have been a cry of protest from the depths of the heart has been turned into a shrill nagging of claims and counterclaims, which is both impure and unpractical." Just think about that for a second. Is this back and forth about rights even helpful? Or does it simply reinforce the legitimacy of alienation from the top down? Where less and less, not unlike the market that we participate in, we are not nearly as connected to the objects or the values uh, that we espouse on a daily basis. Further disconnected from one another, further disconnected from our values, and then further disconnected from any kind of system that promotes the good life. Anyway, let me know what you think. Share, subscribe. I'd be happy to hear your thoughts. Have a good day.